Before I pray, I would like to give a parental warning. If you are a parent who has your kids in the service right now, I want to let you know this morning we are studying the subject of homosexuality. It will not be graphic, but it is a very adult topic. It's probably not age-appropriate for children under nine, so I don't know if there's any children nine years age or under who are in here. But if there are, when I pray in a moment, I would invite you to, to take your kids to the children's ministry. We have a full program for them. You can just exit through the foyer here and check them in at the welcome desk. Now, if you have kids from 10 years old up through junior high in here, I leave it to your discretion as parents. I promise you that your kids are hearing about the issue of homosexuality. They hear about it every time they see the TV. They hear about it at school. They see it in society. So they need to know what we're going to be talking about this morning. But I totally respect you if you would rather be the one to deliver that truth to them rather than it come from me. So uh, if you have kids who are 10 years age and up through junior high, uh, they are welcome to, to exit as well. If they're up through fourth grade, you need to check them in. If they're fifth and sixth graders, there's a Club 56 program they can just go to in the education building. And if they're junior hires, we actually have a youth service going on right now for junior high and high school in the college room through the foyer. Okay, so as I pray, your kids are welcome to Exeter. If they're little kids, please take them that direction and check them in. Now, if you will bow in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we're looking at an extremely difficult subject this morning. Father, I, I come before you in a a spirit of humility, Lord. Oh, Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are glorious. Lord, thank you this morning that you are a Father who loves us. Lord, we pray that this morning that you would meet us here. We pray that your spirit would fill every one of us, myself included. Please, Lord, draw us close to you. Open your eyes to truth, Lord. Be glorified and pleased with this time. And Father, if there's anything I say this morning that is not truthful, I pray, Lord, that we would forget it, that it would pass away. And that which is truthful, Lord, I pray that we would believe it and that we would own it and that we would live it and that we would be willing to share it with others. Please, Father, take this time and make it glorifying to you. Thank you, Lord, that in Christ we need fear nothing. In his name we pray, amen. All right, this morning as we cover the subject of homosexuality, we're going to do it with questions and answers. I'm going to pose a number of questions that are commonly asked in society and answer them from a biblical perspective. Now, the first question you may be wondering is, why? Why are we dedicating an entire Sunday morning to the topic of homosexuality? Now, last week in Romans 1, Paul did broach the subject, but he only spent two verses on it. So why a whole Sunday on this thing? Well, there's three reasons why we're going to take a whole Sunday on this. First, because the issue of homosexuality is the defining social issue of this generation. This is it. This will be the defining social issue of this generation, at least in America, at least in the Western world. Uh, There is a rapid change happening in our society right now. Rapid state of change of of opinions and positions on this issue. Let me give you just a few illustrations. Uh, First, from public opinion. While 70% of our grandparents' generation feel that homosexuality is always wrong, only 43% of those born after 1981 feel that it's always wrong. So that's a pretty dramatic change of opinion in just two generations. Another example from pop culture. How many of you remember 1997... Ellen DeGeneres' character came out on television. It it was all anyone was talking about. It was huge. It was this defining moment. Well, nowadays, 
you're hard-pressed to find any TV show that doesn't have at least a token gay character. There's nothing remarkable about it anymore. Another example of the rapid state of change in our laws, I don't know if you realize this, but actually in the state of Texas, homosexual sex was illegal until 2003. Well, nowadays it's legal everywhere in the United States, and actually it's sanctioned by marriage in six states plus the District of Columbia. Another rapid area of change is homosexuality in the church. In just the last few years, we've gone from zero to five major Christian denominations that now support gay marriage and ordain gay clergy. So so there is this sea change happening in our society, a, a massive movement of change as we go from rejecting homosexuality to embracing it as a society. That's the first reason we have to talk about it this morning. It is the defining social issue of our generation. The second reason, it is not just an issue for people out there. It's also an issue for people in here. I think most of you, like me, probably know someone who is struggling with homosexuality. You may know people who are embracing homosexuality. I know multiple people struggling with this issue. This isn't an issue that's just out there anymore. It's an issue that's right here in our community, in our church. There's probably some of you here this morning who struggle with the issue of homosexuality in your own life. Now, unfortunately, that leads us to reason number three, why we've got to talk about it this morning. Because far too often, when the church has come face to face with the issue of homosexuality, Christians have responded without grace. So often, as we Christians have seen the change going on in our society around this issue, we have responded in fear and judgment. We have communicated, whether we intended to or not, that there is no place in the church for those who struggle with homosexuality that the road of of gays and the road of the church never can meet. We've communicated without intending to that we do not like homosexuals. Well, I want to be very, very clear this morning that we as the church are called to communicate truth, biblical truth, that's what this whole morning is about, but we're called to communicate truth in grace. We Christians need to be really, really quick to remind people and make it very clear that God does not hate gay people. God does not hate gay people. God loves them. God loves all of them. Remember the words of our most famous verse in scripture, John 3, 16. How does it begin? For God so loved the world. That's all human beings, all of humanity. That includes people who are tempted by same-sex attraction. That even includes people who act on that who are homosexual in activity. That even includes the people who are promoting the gay agenda in our nation. God loves them. He loves them so much that what? That he sent his son to die for them, just like he died for the rest of us. For that reason, God would never, ever, ever condone violence or bullying towards homosexuals. Not ever. God would also never condone the telling of gay jokes. God doesn't like it when we make fun of people he died for. God actually wants his church, us, to be the first ones to run next to those who have been bullied and abused because of homosexuality. He wants us to be the ones extending grace and love and comfort and grace to them. Why? So that we can share the truth. We can't share the truth if we don't start in grace. So this morning is going to be about truth in grace. And if you're here this morning and you wrestle with the issue of homosexuality, 
If this affects you, or if you have even acted on same-sex attractions, if you have engaged in homosexual behavior, I want to say right off the bat, very, very clearly, God loves you, and so do we. God loves you, and so do we, and you are welcome here. We're glad you came this morning. This morning is not about condemnation. It is about truth wrapped up in grace. And so in grace, let's together begin to discover the truths about homosexuality from Scripture. So let's start. Next question I want to look at is a definitional question. It's very important to clarify what we mean by the word homosexuality. That word, as it's commonly used in our society, can mean three distinct things. First of all, it can refer to same-sex attraction, to feelings of physical or emotional attraction towards someone of the same gender. So it can refer to homosexual attraction. Second, it can refer to same-sex identity. This is the person that, because they experience same-sex attractions, has, become, has come to believe that those attractions define their identity, that those homosexual desires determine who they are. This is the person who says, who identifies themselves as, I am gay, or I am lesbian, or I am bisexual. They have allowed their attractions to define their identity. That's the second thing that's often meant by the word. Third thing that's often meant by the word is the behavior. This is any sexual activity or behavior with someone of the same gender. Now, it's very significant to keep those three distinctions in mind all morning long as we go through and answer these questions. Very important to realize that those are three distinct things. Okay, now I want to move to, to an, a question that in many people's minds is the most important question, yet biblically speaking is really not that important. I want to answer this question so we can set it aside and get to what is really important. So the question that most people think is the most important but really isn't, where does homosexual attraction come from? What is the source of the temptation of homosexuality? Does it arise from nature, that is our genetics, our genes? Does it come from nurture, our our home life and environment of our upbringing? Or does it come from the choices that we make? Now, there's been a lot of ink and a lot of hatred and anger spilled over this question. And actually, there's, there's errors being made on both sides of the fence. Uh, there's a lot of Christians who say, well, it's, it's number three. It's always a choice. People simply choose to be attracted to someone of the same sex. Well, no, that, that's not true. Uh, our behaviors are choices, but our attractions aren't. We, we don't get to choose our desires. Not a single person in the world has ever woken up one morning and decided from now on, I will be attracted to someone of the same sex. No, no one does that. Just like the rest of us don't wake up one morning and decide from now on, I will be attracted to someone of the opposite sex. You don't get to choose your attractions and desires, only your behavior. So it's not simply a choice. Now, that said, the choices you have made in the past do have an effect upon the desires you feel in the present. When we choose to engage in activity in an activity today, it shapes what our desires will be in the future. We're going to see that really clearly in Romans chapter 6. Your choices today have an effect upon your desires in the future. You also actually see that from medical science. Dr. Mark Breedlove at Michigan State University, he is a neuro, neuro, <laughs> neuroscientist. 
He has done a ton of studies on this subject, on homosexuality, and has concluded these findings give us proof from what we theoretically know to be the case, that sexual experience can alter the structure of the brain, just as genes can alter it. It is possible that differences in sexual behavior cause rather than are caused by differences in brain structure. Uh, That's actually Romans 6 at work. When you choose something today, it does affect and shape your desires in the future. So choice can have an effect on same-sex attraction, but it doesn't determine it. It's not simply choice. That's too simplistic of an answer. At the same time, many people in the gay community are choosing option number one. You see that all the time. This is the argument that homosexuality is purely genetic, that there is some gay gene, some genetic sequence that if you are born with it, you will be gay. Well, that also is not true. That's far too simplistic. No person is born gay. Biblically speaking, we're born heterosexual. We're born male and female designed for heterosexual marriage. No one is born gay. There, there is no gay gene. If you really look at the scientific evidence, which we don't have time to do this morning in detail, you will see no one has been able to prove the existence of anything like a gay gene that determines your sexual orientation. I'll give you just a, a couple findings on the subject. Simon LaVey in 1991 produced a study that has often been used to, to quote, prove the existence of a gay gene. Yet two years later, he came back and clarified, he, he debunked that conclusion, I did not prove that homosexuality is genetic or find a genetic cause for being gay. I did not show that gay men are born that way, the most common mistake people make in interpreting my work, nor did I locate a gay center in the brain. So his work, which is the most often cited, did not prove what they're arguing. It doesn't prove that you're born gay. Another study that is often quoted is a study of twins, of homosexuality in twins done by Bailey and Pillard also back in 1991. What they found in studying both identical twins and fraternal twins is that if one of the twins was gay, if one of the twins had homosexual attraction, then the other twin did too, 52% of the time with identical twins and 22% of the time with fraternal or non-identical twins. Now, a lot of people look at that evidence and say, okay, so you are born gay. There's the proof. What's the problem with that, you who know genetics? If homosexual attraction is purely caused by genetics, then what should the percentage be for homosexuality within the identical twins? 100%. It's like blue eyes if it's simply genetically caused. If one twin is gay, then by necessity, the other must also, if it is simply an issue of genes. There is no gay gene that we have ever found. Homosexual attraction is not explained simply by genetics. Now, that said... There probably is a genetic connection to homosexual attraction in many cases. In fact, that's actually true for pretty much any type of temptation you struggle with. Your genetics does shape your personality traits, including shaping what particular desires and temptations you as an individual will struggle with. That's true for any temptation. For example, the temptation to abuse alcohol. Very clear genetic links to alcoholism. Certain individuals, because of their genetics, will be more predisposed towards alcoholism than others. Guess what? I'm actually in that group. Based on my family lineage, distant relatives, we had quite a few very raging alcoholics way up in my family line. For that reason, it is quite likely that I have a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism. That said, I, I have never in my life been drunk And I have never wanted to be drunk. 
My genetics do not make me an alcoholic. And if tomorrow I decided to abuse alcohol and became an alcoholic, my genetics would not excuse my behavior. They never do. Genes do not determine or excuse behavior. Okay, so based on the best evidence I can find and in line with what we see in scripture, what is the answer to this question? Well, it's really a lot more complex than either of those two answers. Where does homosexual attraction come from? It comes from a complex and varied web that often includes all three sources. Genetics, our nature, combining with our upbringing, our nurture, and the choices we make to shape the desires that we have. Now that second one is is actually strongly shown to influence in many cases. Many people who experience same-sex attraction have come from an upbringing that was in some way dysfunctional. Not all of them, but many of them. Let me give you a a couple statistics to show that. Uh, First one, they found that nearly 70% of gender-confused boys do not have a father at home. Nearly 70%. So again, it's not all, but many men who struggle with, with identifying as a man come from a home where the father was not present. So in those cases, often the, the, the boy ends up bonding more with his mother and the boy might begin to long for the affection of other men because he didn't get it from his father. That's a common connection. Again, not always, but common. Uh, second type of dysfunction that's far more serious, abuse. Uh, studies have found that 46% of homosexual men report being molested by another man when they were a child. That goes much higher when we're talking about women. 90% of lesbian women in one study had experienced some form of abuse as a child. So very frequently, people who experience same-sex attraction come from homes that were dysfunctional or even abusive. Again, not always, don't make assumptions, but often. Now, let's pause on our question for a second and realize that as Christians, that should fill us with compassion, That should fill us with compassion. I really wish that the Christians who get angry at the gay community would save their anger for other people. Save your anger for the people who abuse lots of these folks. Save your anger for the adults who perpetrated criminal acts upon many of them. That's who you should get angry with, not the gay people. You should have compassion and love because so many in the gay community come from dysfunctional and broken homes and abusive situations. Should have great compassion. Okay, so where do homosexual attractions, desires come from? Well, it's hard to say. A complex web that could include all three of those sources. But here's the kicker. Ultimately, that's not what matters. Ultimately, where an attraction or desire or temptation comes from is not what matters. When you look at scripture, you find that God really spends very little time diagnosing where our particular temptations come from. He doesn't really care. What does he care about? what we do with the temptation. He cares about the choice that we make, where our temptations come from, whether it's genetics or our upbringing or the choices we've made in the past, that doesn't excuse our behavior in the present. It does not determine what we do in the present. We have a choice to make. God holds us responsible for our choices. So that means if if some years from now, if someone actually does discover the gay gene, which I I don't think is going to happen, but if someone does discover it, guess what? Really doesn't matter. At that point, I will just remind them, well, genetically speaking, I was born a lustful heterosexual male with a propensity towards adultery, like almost every other man in this audience. Guess what? That doesn't excuse our behavior. We are responsible for the choices 
we make. So, with this question answered as best as I can, let's set it aside and move on to what's far more important. Much more important question scripturally, is homosexuality sin? According to the Bible, is homosexuality a sin? Now, to many of you in here, that's going to sound like a foregone conclusion, but there are many biblical scholars, particularly those in the liberal wing of the church, who would say no, who would say that the Bible is either silent or irrelevant on this matter. So let's get into the evidence. Let's look at the primary passages in Scripture that address this subject. Biblically speaking, is homosexuality sin? There's a lot of passages. I'm just going to give you a few, the major ones. We're going to start with the Old Testament evidence. Uh, There's two passages in particular in the book of Leviticus that are especially important. They make up part of the Mosaic law. Leviticus 18.22, God says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Similarly, in Leviticus 20.13, If there is a man who lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now that that evidence seems pretty clear. Homosexual behavior, at least between two men, is clearly sin. It's punishable by death in the Mosaic law. So what would a liberal scholar say to that? Well, the most common answer is, well, there's a lot of laws in the Mosaic law that we don't follow anymore. There's that law about you shall not mix two kinds of different thread in your clothing. Probably all of us are disobeying that this morning. Uh, There's that law about you shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. We don't pay any attention to that one anymore, so why do we pay attention to this? Now, how do we respond to that? Well, two things. First of all, uh, neither of those other laws brought the death penalty. The death penalty was reserved for only the most serious level of sin, things like murder, rape, adultery, and homosexuality. Second, The New Testament does actually teach that the Mosaic law does no longer apply to us. The Mosaic law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and set aside. And yet, the New Testament also makes clear that the standard of holiness reflected in the Mosaic law does still apply to us. The same standard of holiness applies to us in the church, and the New Testament goes out of its way to restate and even expand those prohibitions against homosexuality. New Testament is very clear. Multiple passages. I'm just going to give you the two most important. The first is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now this passage is not about getting to heaven. Inheriting the kingdom of God. And Paul, that's about receiving reward from Jesus Christ. You will be honored by Jesus Christ if you avoid these things. These are sins that would bring you shame when you stand before Jesus. And the two that are most significant to this discussion are the two that are underlined. Effeminate and homosexuals. Let's take each of those in turn. Effeminate. Now that's a very problematic translation. Because when we hear the word effeminate, we tend to think of a man who is not very macho. Uh, Maybe he speaks in a high voice, he has a slight build, he's sensitive, he likes fashion. That is not at all what Paul is talking about. None of those things are bad. Actually, this is a technical term, I'm not going to be graphic, but this is the man in the homosexual relationship that when they have sex, he takes the part of the woman. He is the passive partner in homosexual sex. The second term, homosexuals, that is the dominant partner the one who plays the role of a man when they come together. Literally, it means a man who takes other men to bed. 
And the point here is Paul is saying, no matter what role you play in the homosexual relationship, when you have sex, it is sin. Okay, now that is clear about male homosexuality. What about female homosexuality? That's addressed in the passage we looked at last week, Romans 1, 26 to 27. Let's read it again. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now just to review the context for you, Romans 1, this section of the book, Paul is listing out for us the consequences that come when a person rejects God. These are the sins which God hands a person over to so that they can be ruined and destroyed for rejecting him. And in that list of sins, it begins with idolatry, it moves on to sexual immorality, then it hits homosexuality. Whether by women or by men, it is equally sin. And then it moves on to social sins, culminating in the ultimate sin that Paul lays out, which is celebrating evil, being a cheerleader of evil. So that's Romans 1. Now, having looked at the the four most important passages, let's draw some conclusions from this evidence. Conclusion number one on the question of is homosexuality sin? Behavior, not attraction, is the biblical issue. Remember those three distinctions we started with. It's behavior that is in focus, not attraction. Okay, now the Leviticus passages, 1 Corinthians, they are explicitly referring only to the behavior. That's the only thing in view there. In Romans 1, it's a little bit bigger. It's not just the behavior, but also the choice of those men to burn in their lust for one another. Basically, they were tempted and they chose to embrace that temptation and let it burn within them into lust. So, we conclude from this that same-sex attraction is not sin. It doesn't become sin until you choose to embrace the temptation, either in lust or in activity, in actual homosexual behavior. That's when it becomes sin. And that sense, homosexual attraction, same-sex temptation, is like any other temptation. Temptations are not sins. They don't become sins until you act upon them. You can't control your temptations. I love how Martin Luther's grandmother put it. When, when Luther was struggling with temptation, his grandmother said, Martin, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. That, that's right. That's how this works. You, you can't control what flies over your head. Where your temptations come from could be a variety of places. You don't have control over them. They are not sin, okay? But when you choose to let them nest in your hair, when you embrace them and turn them into lust or act upon them, then they become sin. Okay, so same-sex attraction is not sin. We, we in the church, we need to be careful about that. Often when we say that homosexuality is sin, what people are hearing is that these desires I have are sinful. no. The desires are simply sinful temptations like we all have. You're not sinning when you feel that. Now you have a choice to make. It's sinful if you embrace them. Okay, and that leads us to the next conclusion. Homosexual behavior is clearly sin. It is sin. There is no way around that. And if you guys have been here for a while, you know I'm really honest with you. When there is a passage or a theological issue that I'm still wrestling with or I'm not certain about, I tell you that. This is not one of them. I, I am absolutely certain 
The biblical evidence is absolutely clear. Now, that doesn't keep people from trying to twist Scripture to fit their opinions. The most common uh, rebuttals that are given to this evidence is, well, Paul was only talking about uh, homosexuality that was wrapped up in idolatry, because idolatry is often in the context. Or he's only talking about pedophilia, homosexual sex between an adult and a child. Or he's only talking about promiscuous homosexuality, not monogamous. Well, No, none of that fits the very clear wording of those passages. These sins are described very literally. It is any man who does with a a man anything sexual or any woman who, who exchanges what she would do with a man to do it with a woman. Any homosexual behavior in any context is sin. Even if it is sanctioned by the word marriage, even if you call it marriage, it is still sin scripturally. So, Homosexuality is sin. It's very clear in Scripture. That leads us to the next question that we need to talk about. Is homosexual sin worse than other sins? Is this some sin that is in its own class of sins? Is this some sin that brings some over-the-top wrath from God? Well, the answer is very simple. Absolutely not. No, it's not worse than other sins. Sin is sin. We're Protestants. We believe that the Bible teaches that all sin is sin. There are not levels of sin. 1 Corinthians 6 made that easy to see. Remember, homosexuality comes right in the middle of a list that includes stealing, getting drunk, and coveting. That probably includes every one of us in the condemnation of that passage. Romans 1, it places homosexual behavior right in the middle of the pack. Idolatry is the first and primary sin. Being a cheerleader of evil is the ultimate pinnacle sin. Homosexuality is just one of many there in the center. And if I haven't convinced you yet, uh, remember the ministry of Jesus. Who did Jesus save his wrath for? Not the prostitutes, not the sexual sinners. He saved his wrath for the self-righteous. The people who thought they were better than other people, that's who Jesus got angry with. So homosexuality is just a sin like any other. It is one of many serious sexual sins the Bible lists for us. It's on the same par with adultery, fornication, rape, things of that nature. Okay, so this is a very important conclusion. If homosexuality is not worse than other sins, if homosexual behavior does not merit more wrath than God, then this leads to two really, really significant implications, especially for you in this room who struggle with this issue. If you struggle with same-sex attraction or have even acted upon those desires in the past, I want you to know the next two things very clearly that come from this biblical answer. First, you are not a second-class Christian. You are not a second-class member of this church. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. We all are sinners, and one sin isn't more serious than another. We all are equally condemned before God because we're all sinners. We're all equally in need of God's grace through Christ. I love how it was put by a pastor up east. There was a a pastor of a very conservative church who, for whatever reason, began to develop a heart for people dying of AIDS. And so he began in his city to go find people who were dying of AIDS and give them comfort and love in their moment of need. And the gay community began to hear about that. Just amazing compassion uh, from this man. And and because of that, uh, many within the gay community came to check out his church. Now, that caused the members of his conservative church to grow a little fearful, a, a little concerned. And so they said to their pastor, well, 
Pastor, the, the homosexuals are coming. They are coming down the aisles by twos. What are we going to do? And I, I love it. This is what the pastor replied. Well, I guess they can take their seat next to the idolaters and the gossips and the fornicators, so make some room. (laughs) And then he began to deliver a message that was full of truth and grace. What a victory for that church. We who don't struggle with homosexuality are no better than those who do. God loves us all equally. We are all equally in need of his grace. I love the age-old saying, the ground at the cross is level. We all come to the cross on our knees in need of God's help daily. So, struggling with this temptation, even giving into this sin does not make you a second-class Christian. There are no second-class Christians here. We're all on the same ground. Second implication of this for you who struggle, this struggle does not define you. It really grieves me, that second definition of homosexuality. That people call it their identity. That hurts me. It makes me so sad. Since when did our sexual desires shape our identity? You are not gay. You are not a lesbian. You are a creature made in the image of God. You are a person for whom God loves. That's your identity. Not gay or straight. This sin does not determine your identity. It's just a sin like any other. You're a person whom God made in his image. That's your identity. So, homosexuality is not worse than other sins. You're not second class if you struggle with it, and it does not shape your identity. I hope that we can make that message really clear to our society. I hope that we can be gracious. I hope that they can hear grace coming from our lips about this issue. But uh, I do believe that even if we are successful in getting out that gracious message, that we're probably going to still take a lot of heat from this. We are probably going to take a lot of heat as a church for taking a public stand that homosexual behavior is sin. That is not a popular stand. Uh, We are already being called bigots for that. Our position is already compared to the the racist during segregation. We're going to take a lot of heat for this, and and that's going to lead us to ask a very natural question, okay, well, why don't we keep silent about this? We know it's sin. Why don't we keep that knowledge to ourselves and let society do whatever it wants? Why do we have to take a public stand on the issue of homosexuality? That's the next question that I want to address. Why is it that we have to address this? I actually want to expand the question and ask, why should we take a public stand on any sin? Why should we publicly get up and tell society that when it does X, it is sinning? Why do we do that? Well, two reasons. Number one, because that's how we lead them to the gospel. Until someone knows that they need to be saved, they're not going to look for a savior. They need to understand that what they're doing is sin. It really does bring the wrath of God. It separates them from God. If we're going to give them the hope of the gospel, we have to help them understand their need for it. And part of that is calling sin, sin. We need to be open and honest about that. That's the first reason. We take a public stand on this issue to help lead those struggling to the redemption that's found in the gospel. The second reason we take a public stand is because we want to help them escape the consequences. 
We want to help them escape the consequences of sin. Now, all sin has consequences. All sin is destructive. But some sins carry heavier consequences than other sins, and homosexuality is one of those. Homosexual behavior carries very devastating consequences in a person's life. You saw that in Romans chapter one, those verses that we read, that that women who are engaging in homosexual behavior are committing a sin against nature, to quote Paul. What Paul means there is that they're exchanging something satisfying and good heterosexual sex and marriage that, that their creator gave to them, they're exchanging that which is good and beneficial for that which is unsatisfying and destructive. Then Paul actually makes that point even more explicit at the end of the section directed towards males participating in homosexuality. He says they receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. He's talking about physical consequences that come into their bodies. Uh, Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. He brings pain and destruction upon his own body. That's true of any sexual immorality, but especially true of homosexuality. That's not only biblically true, but it is proven in the research. If you'll really look at the science, it's, it's very clearly proven. Let me give you just a few examples. Sexually transmitted diseases. One study found that 78% of homosexuals have had an STD at some point in their life. Although homosexuals comprise less than 5% of the population, they account for half of the nation's cases of syphilis and more than half of the cases of gonorrhea. So this sin really does bring devastating consequences into many of their bodies. Uh, Second example I'll give you, the risk of depression. It's one and a half times higher in those who engage in homosexual behavior than those who don't. The risk of suicide, especially for gay men, is three times higher than the average population. Now, a lot of people will respond, well, that's not homosexuality. That's the fact that they live in a homophobic culture. Well, that's that's a good argument. Where, Where does it come from? Problem is there was a study done in the Netherlands not long ago. Uh, The Netherlands is a country where homosexuality is embraced. Uh, It is viewed positively. Actually, uh, homosexual couples are allowed to marry openly in the Netherlands. And yet, as scientists have studied the, the preponderance of these issues in the homosexual population, here's what they've concluded. This study published in the Archives of General Psychiatry revealed that gay males, this is in the Netherlands, had a higher rate of depression, bipolar disorder, panic disorder agoraphobia, and obsessive compulsive disorder than the heterosexual males in the study. The researchers concluded that the study offers evidence that homosexuality is associated with a higher prevalence of psychiatric disorders even when society is accepting of homosexuality. The sin itself brings devastating consequences, even if society approves of it. Finally, last example I'll give you, premature death. number of studies done on this, and one study was found that the average life expectancy for gay men was 42, and for gay women was 49. It's about 30 years off the national average. Another study concluded that ongoing homosexual behavior can reduce a person's life by up to 20 years, and that's even with AIDS accepted. Many die from the AIDS epidemic. Even when you set aside all of that, still, even those who never suffer AIDS still die 20 to 30 years sooner than those who don't practice homosexuality. So let's conclude this. Let's take this together. Why do we take a public stand? Why do we tell people that homosexual behavior is sin? Is it because we hate gay people? No, it's because we love them. 
It's because we love them too much to curse them to this. Don't leave them to this. We have to tell them they are being lied to by people who say that homosexual behavior is a rewarding and satisfying alternative lifestyle. No, it is not. That's not just a scriptural conclusion. That's a scientific conclusion. It is destructive. And so out of love, we share truth with them. Out of love, we warn them about where their behavior is leading. I think of it in in the terms of Ezekiel. He talks about a watchman standing on the wall of a city who sees an invading army coming against his city. And if he simply tucks tail and runs away and doesn't warn the city about what's coming, then when they die, Ezekiel says, their blood will be on his hands. So it is with us. If we do not warn people about what this sin creates in their lives, their blood will be on our hands. We must tell them. We must take a public stand and help people understand that acting on same-sex attraction, again, the attraction isn't the issue, but homosexual behavior is incredibly destructive. We must take a stand and warn them. We must also take a stand and give them hope. And that leads us to our next question, very commonly asked question. Is homosexuality curable? Now, that may not be the best way to ask that question, but that's how it's often asked. Can homosexuality be cured? I actually want to divide it into two better questions. The first part of that question, can homosexual behavior change? Can the behavior be cured in the sense of cessation? Can you stop acting upon same-sex attraction? Well, the answer is absolutely yes in Scripture. It's very clear. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, the context back in verse 9, Paul was listing sins, including effeminate and homosexuals, those who practice homosexual behavior. And then verse 11, he says, such were, were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Such were some of you. Now again, it's behavior that's in view here, not the attraction, but behavior. You don't have to continue to participate in that behavior. You can stop acting in a homosexual way. And how does that change begin? How do you begin to have victory over homosexual sin? Well, through the gospel. It's through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by being washed, sanctified, justified in him. What Paul is saying is that the first step in finding healing for any sinner, all of us included, is to turn to Jesus in faith, to recognize that we are a sinner, that we need salvation, and then to believe that Jesus Christ, God's son, really did die for our sins in our place and then rose from the dead to conquer sin and death on our behalf. The moment that you believe that, you are forgiven forever. No matter what you do in the future, you are forgiven. You are right in the eyes of God. That's the word justified. You are right in the eyes of God. You have eternal life. And at that moment, God's spirit comes to live inside of you. That's the great hope of this verse. God himself, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of you. And the Holy Spirit, as God, is stronger than any temptation you face. He can give you victory at any moment over temptation. For that reason, for for believers... Sin is never necessary. At no point on any day for the rest of our lives will sin ever be necessary for us because the Spirit lives within us. Paul says a similar thing, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, later in the letter. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able 
but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Homosexual attraction is included here. No temptation, not not any, including same-sex attraction, can overtake you. God has provided a way of escape from it. Sin is never necessary. So can homosexual behavior change? Yes, it can change right now. You never have to give in to that again. Uh, Now the second question, the one that most people really want to know about. What about homosexual orientation? Same-sex attraction, can that change? Is there healing for that? Well, yes, with caveats. The most important passage here is Philippians 2. I've referenced it often. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Those two verbs down there, very, very significant. To work, that's your actions, what you do. God is in you so that you will do what is holy. But that's not only, the only thing that God is empowering in you. He's also empowering within you the will to obey. That word means desire. As you obey God, that's the beginning of the verse, as you continue to obey God, God's spirit works in you to build new desires, to lay new pathways in your brain that desire holy things, that desire obedience. God makes the the old desires, the sinful desires fade and new righteous desires grow as you obey and his spirit works. So yes, same-sex attraction can be healed, but two important caveats, that healing may not include the gift of heterosexual desires. God nowhere in scripture promises to give the person who who struggles with same-sex attraction, attraction for the opposite sex. I, I love how Exodus International puts this. The opposite of homosexuality, biblically speaking, is not heterosexuality, it's holiness, It's holiness. That's what God promises to do. As you seek him in the power of his spirit, obeying day after day, God promises to build within you desires for holiness. Now, he may also build heterosexual desires in you. I've seen that often happen to those who struggle with this, but that's not a guarantee. Second caveat to make, vigilance will always be required in this life. In that sense, this is like any other temptation. God rarely snaps his fingers and takes our temptations away. Really, the the promise of of when your, your temptations flee, when is that? That's when you see Jesus. When you die and see Jesus, then your temptations are removed. For that reason, the victorious Christian life, the Christian life that God designed here on earth, is a life of struggle, not ease. It's a life of warfare between our old desires and our new desires. God rarely simply removes our old sinful desires. So for that reason, all of us have to practice vigilance throughout this life over whatever area of temptations we struggle with. That's why to this day, I meet every week with two accountability partners because I know I have vulnerabilities in my life. I need to confess those to them and be held accountable. I'll need that till the day I die. You have to practice vigilance. That said, that that does not negate the fact that there is incredible hope for those struggling with homosexuality. They can immediately stop the behavior, and as they begin to walk with the Lord in the power of his spirit, he can begin to build new desires and make the old desires fade. 
I have seen that time and again in the men that I have counseled who struggle with same-sex attraction. They begin to walk in holiness in their behavior. Then they begin to develop new desires of holiness. Now, often the old desires, they they don't simply go away, but they lessen. Their grip lessens. Uh, Sometimes God does build heterosexual desires, but not always. But there is hope. There is hope. We need to be clear about proclaiming that message. We need to take a stand publicly, not just to warn people that homosexual behavior is sin, but to give them hope. They're being told that they can't change. It's genetic. You are who you are. No, you're not. This can change. There is hope through the power of God because God is stronger than any temptation. There is hope. We need to take a stand on that. I'm watching my time. I've been debating whether or not I can address the issue of homosexual marriage. I don't have much time, so I'm going to do it in 30 seconds. Uh, if you want to know more, you can come talk to me more later. This issue is big. It is being uh, communicated by our society as a civil rights issue. I saw Rob Reiner on MSNBC this week say that homosexual marriage, gay marriage, is the next Brown versus Board of Education. So if you don't support it, you are a racist. Well, um, Rob Reiner, no. No, biblically speaking, that is absolutely not true. This is not a rights issue. Gay people have the exact same rights to marriage that we do. They can marry anyone they want, so long as it's a person of the opposite sex, because that's what marriage is. It's not up to human beings to redefine it. Who, did, who gave marriage to us? It was God in creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Marriage is not a human institution to be defined and set by governments. Now, God gives human governments the right to legislate the details, how old do you have to be, how removed genetically do you have to be, but governments do not have the right from God to redefine marriage. So as biblical Christians who believe the Bible, we cannot support gay marriage. We do not have the right from our creator to do that. He is the one who has the divine right to institute this divine institution. It's not a human institution. Uh, The second answer I would give is the passages were pretty clear. No matter what you call it, even if you call it marriage, when two people of the same sex come together and have sex, it is always sin. So we, we simply can't support gay marriage. We don't have the right to do that. Now, with those questions answered, let's end with some application. What if you personally struggle with homosexuality? What if you struggle with same-sex attraction or you have even acted on that attraction in the past? I want to give you three things to remember that we've already talked about, and I want to give you three things to do. First, I want you to remember behavior, not temptation, is sin. When I talk to people who struggle with this, I see so much guilt on their faces, even if they have never acted upon their temptations. God doesn't want you to feel that guilt. You are not guilty because of the temptations you face. None of us are. The temptation itself is not a sin. You do not need to hold on to that guilt. Second, I want you to remember, the struggle does not define you. This is not a sin in a class of its own. You are not a gay man or a lesbian woman. You are a person made in the image of God, whom God loved enough to send his son to die for you. That's your identity. This sin does not change that. The sin does not define your identity. And finally, there is hope. Even if it feels hopeless, there is hope. Change is possible because we have a very big God, a God who is bigger than all of our temptations and struggles. So remember those three things and then three things to do. First of all, you need to flee tempting people and situations. You need to flee those situations that set you up for temptation and failure. 
Uh, You need to flee those people, even if they're great friends, even if you have had great compassion from them in the past and great relationships with them in the past. If they are leading you towards homosexual behavior, you've got to flee that. You've got to run away. Second, you do need to be accountable to someone safe. Sin grows when it's left in the dark. That's true for all of us. Every one of us in this room, I hope we are all accountable to someone in an open and vulnerable way. You need to be accountable to someone safe. Now, from my experience, usually that's gonna be a person of the same gender who does not struggle with this particular desire. Okay, when it's somebody of the same gender who struggles in the same way you do, uh, that can create a problem. Um, When it's somebody of the opposite gender, that can also create a problem. So find somebody of the same gender who doesn't struggle with this particular issue, knowing they're no better than you, they're a sinner just like you, and be accountable to them, be vulnerable and open to them. Finally, get some expert help. Often, for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction, it flows out of issues in their past that are deep and painful and serious. And you need help to identify those issues and work through them. Um, Let me say for everyone here on staff, we would love for you to come talk to us. Whether it's a pastor or someone else on staff, come talk to us. We will help you to begin to move forward in healing and in growth. Uh, We may direct you to a great biblical counselor. There's some Christian counselors out there who are better than any of us on staff at helping people work through issues in their past. So we may direct you that way. Uh, I also want to point out a great, great website, a great organization, Exodus International. It's the world's largest support group for individuals and families who are affected by homosexuality. It's actually run by those who have come out of this area of sin in their own lives and are walking in victory. Uh, The website is exodusinternational.org. It is absolutely full of resources. Truly, this is an incredible ministry. I highly, highly recommend it. So go there, learn more about this issue, find help um, from that ministry. Okay, so that's my advice to you if you personally struggle with this issue. What about if someone you love struggles with it or even embraces homosexuality? Um, that, that can be a challenging thing. That can be painful if it's a friend or a loved one or, or a child who struggles with same-sex attraction or, or confesses that, that they're gay, they, they begin to act upon it. What do you do? Well, number one, take a deep breath and relax. Remember, This isn't some special class of sin meriting over-the-top wrath from God. This is just sin like any other. It's gonna be okay. God's bigger than this. God can work them through this. There is hope. You don't need to freak out. Relax. Second, educate yourself. I encourage you, parents or friends, whoever you have in your life who is struggling with this issue, go educate yourself by going to exodusinternational.org. They have resources for parents, for friends, for family. Uh, I also want to point out one book to you. There's a whole lot of books out there, many of which are good. Uh, there's, I don't want to overwhelm you with recommendations, so there's one that I have read and really felt like that was the best one volume, short, it's a real short book, only a couple hundred pages, Treatment of the Subject, 101 Frequently Asked Questions About Homosexuality by Mike Haley. Now, Mike is a believer who has come out of not just same-sex attraction, but full same-sex lifestyle for many years of his life. He's been walking in victory for a long time now. He's now married and has kids. He leads uh, a very vibrant ministry for those coming out of this area of sin. Very, very wise man. I found this book very, very helpful. It also will direct you to more specific resources on specific issues. So 101 Frequently Asked Questions About Homosexuality by Mike Haley. Great, great book. Third, speak the truth in grace. You do need to speak. You can't avoid this. That's actually a big point that Mike makes. Don't leave this as the pink elephant in the room. You gotta address it. 
You gotta be open about it. But when you do, speak the truth in grace. Let your first words and your last words be grace. Let your first words and your last words reaffirm your love for the person and God's unconditional and absolute love for the person. Speak the truth in grace. And finally, pray. Pray. This is an issue that that this person is really struggling with. This is not an easy issue. This is not a light issue. Pray that God would work. God is the one who brings healing. God is the one who brings victory. Pray that God would guide and direct. Let's turn to God right now and pray that we would be vessels of grace and truth to those who are hurting. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we confess every single one of us here is a sinner who deserves your wrath. All of us are on equal ground. Lord, we confess that and we praise you that not only did you know that, but you provided a solution. You sent your son to die for us, to carry all of our sins upon himself, to die in our place, to take the wrath that we deserved. And then you raised him from the dead to conquer sin and death. Lord, we praise you that sin has been conquered, that even though it is something we struggle with, we know that it has been defeated by you. We praise you for that, Lord. And we pray for any person in this room who doesn't yet know that message. Please, Lord, let today be the day of salvation for them. Whether they struggle with uh, same-sex attraction or not, Lord, whatever their issues are, please help them to know that you love them so much that you sent your son to die for their sins and then raised him from the dead. Help them to trust Jesus completely. We pray, Lord, for for all of us, Lord, help us to be people of grace Help us to be people who walk in truth. We pray for those among us who are struggling with this issue in their own lives, who who experience same-sex attraction, Lord. I pray right now, Lord, please free them from guilt and shame. Help them to know the forgiveness they have in Jesus Christ. Help them to know without doubt that they're not second-class members here, that you love them unconditionally and absolutely. We pray, Father, that they would not let this sin define them, but that they would find victory through your Spirit that they would find victory through accountability, through openness, through really walking with you, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would turn their lives into a great cause for celebration. And for those of us who don't struggle with the issue but know those who do, Lord, please help us to love them well. Please help us to model the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Help us to be clear that we are right with them, sinners at the same level that they are. Help us to please you, Lord, in grace and in truth. We pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. See you next week.